Good morning, church. It's good to be back. Most of your faces look somewhat familiar. Um, I always love driving over the hill. I, I may have said this one of the other times. I, I don't know if I've... It hit me again this morning how much I enjoy worshiping with you guys here. I want you to hear that because we all... It's the way it works. We get so ingrained in our own churches. And in my church, we do the whole drums and the whole guitars. And maybe you guys will grow to that point. It's, but... I don't know, the simplicity I love. I, and, I, and your voices, per capita, this church seems louder than any church I've ever been in. <laughs> per person. There's no doubt about that. And, and I actually think part of it is it's not overly instrument. There's not too many instrumentals where you hear one another. And the public reading of the word, it's something I, I limit even. I mean, this is, you know, we all love our own churches, right? But um, the dedication to reading uh, an entire chapter from Micah uh, something I think about a lot, evangelical churches, often we talk about the Bible a lot and we preach the Bible a lot, but often other churches that don't even really believe the Bible read more of the Bible on a regular Sunday morning sometimes than we do. And you guys are, are standing in opposition to that. So I just wanted you to hear from me. It, it, it ministers to me the thoughtfulness, the thoughtfulness of your prayers. When my sons came the very first time, it was, I guess it was about a year ago. My sons were able to join, and they left, and they're, they're like, those prayers were long, but they weren't saying it like, oh, those prayers are long. They were, they were it captured them how thoughtful and, and uh, the length that you guys put into these things. So I just wanted you to hear, as someone who visits occasionally, uh, that, what that ministers to me. So thank you for allowing me that. So we are going to be this morning in Psalm 82. So you can open there. Um, it's also in your bulletin. At our church at Grace EV Free Over the Hill, um, we try to every year. There was a couple of years that we did not. But in November, there's a dedicated Sunday that is either some places call it Orphan Care Sunday or Defending the Fatherless Sunday or uh, a Sunday dedicated to the orphan crisis and the gospel response to it. And so that's what we did in November. It was the second Sunday in November, November 11th. And uh, so as Jason asked me to, to jump in, we kind of talked about what, what I had available and ready. And uh, this is where we landed. So um, that's going to be our, our focus. And obviously the focus is going to be primarily exegetical. Um, and we're going to use eight, Psalm 82 as our launch pad. And, but we are going to do a little bit of a survey as well at times on orphan care generally in which I will list and read quite a few texts. You can write them down and look them up later. Um, I was laughing when I read back through this, thinking this is, you know, 25, 30 years ago. When I first started preaching and teaching, this would have been one of those sermons, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, where we're flipping to every passage. It's just sort of like everyone's like, their hands are worn out because there's just uh, too many verses. The very first time I ever preached, this old preacher came up to me and said, too many verses. It wasn't a real encouraging, but it was just like, too many verses. We looked at too many verses. And his point was, stick in a text, preach a text, uh, don't don't just jump around like a trampoline from one unrelated passage to another one. Uh, the way your disorganized mind is not nearly as good as the way the Spirit has presented it to us um, in its fullness. And so it was a good lesson for me. So let's read Psalm 82 together. Um, Imini and I will read it. Read along, please. Um, and we will jump in from there. Uh, Father, Holy Spirit, we need your help. As we even read your word, much less attempt to understand it and apply it. Do that for us now. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. 
In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We'll end up not doing a proper, full exegesis of Psalm 82, because when I was given this task at my home church, the primary emphasis that we wanted to tackle was to thinking about what the Bible has to say about orphan care and defending the fatherless and relating that situatingly out of the gospel. So we're going to dive into the overall structure, and then we're going to use some other passages uh, of revealed scripture to help us with that task. So that's what we're doing this morning. Um, enjoy, and let's let allow ourselves to sort of, maybe it's something some of you have thought about quite a bit, maybe it's something some of you have not thought about very much at all. Personally, um, I have experienced particularly, so we're going to talk later about the importance of separating orphan care from adoption slash foster. Sometimes we might be thinking, oh, the only way you can care for orphans is to adopt slash foster, and there's so many other ways. So, But specifically, I have been in my life experientially related to adoption in three different ways. Um, and I realized how much they all shake me in, in very different ways, very important ways. When I was a junior high kid, my parents adopted an older sister. It wasn't technically an adoption because she was 18 years old, so there was no legal reason to adopt her, but she was a Brazilian recent convert to Christianity. This is pre-9-11 when you could do such things. The missionary that lived two miles away from my little ranch farm home was also a farmer who was also a missionary. He had been in Brazil. He had shared the gospel. This one young lady, among others, converted, and her family turned their back on her, and he just brought her to the United States with him. (laughs) Imagine coming through customs that way now. Do you have anything to declare? Well, I have this 18-year-old Brazilian that's going to come in with me. But back then, I guess it just, I don't know how it worked, but she just landed on this farm not far away and she sort of lived with these grandfatherly type people and started attending our church. And my mother very graciously recognized she needs a family. Makes me emotionally been thinking about. And she, in her broken English, Marcy, Marcia, just kind of joined our family at 18 years old. To the point that now her husband is a pastor in Florida and she's in the will. It's, there's no doubt about it that she is my sister. It's kind of funny because when people ask me, your siblings, if I think about who I grew up with, I grew up with my one older brother. And sometimes my wife would say, well, and your sister. And I was like, oh yeah, I have a sister too. But she joined when I was like 15 and she was 19 years old, 18 years old. And so it's somewhat easy to forget. I remember uh, early days we played Pictionary where you see a word and you have to draw it. And uh, poor Marcy had only been speaking English for about a year. So that makes Pictionary quite difficult, both for knowing the word to how to draw it and how to guess. It's like, I know what the thing is, but I have no idea what it's called. And so we have all these experiences 
with Marcy. That was my first touch with adoption and seeing my own parents graciously open their home uh, to a needy young lady. Then I no doubt that played a part in my wife and I's decision about 10 years ago. It was actually 10 years ago, coming up on our 11th anniversary now, of adopting my two sons from Ethiopia who were here, I think, about a year ago with me. They are now 17 and 18 years old. Well, 16 and 18 and, and uni will turn 17 in, a, in a, about two weeks. So they came at seven and eight, uh, six and seven to our family been with us for 10 years now. I have two biological daughters. I don't think they've been able to join us yet. Uh, Damaris is a Biola student who's 20, and Stella is also 17. So we artificially twinned is what they call it in the adoption world. My younger daughter got a brother that was her same age and in the same class, and they don't look very similar because one's Ethiopian and the other's uh, Native American, because my wife's a Native American. Um, but they're very much every bit brother and sister, you can imagine. Um, it's, it's, a, it's also very, it's, it's, it's fun for a dad to see, and you all parents can recognize this, to see your children really getting along. And as our kids continue to get older, it's just fun for us. My wife and I just celebrate that their differences in personalities and giftings, but yet they, they really do love one another. The third way that I've touched by adoption, and I'm hoping most of you, perhaps not all have also, and that is that I've been adopted, adopted by the Father through belief in Jesus. So we're going to land on all three of those things um, as we jump in. Uh, so the general outline of Psalm 82, the context is that this is a judgment scene. And you picked up on that right off the bat. Uh, this is the Father taking his place and holding judgment. And right off the bat, there's a potentially difficult interpretive issue ends up not being all that difficult. And that is this use of the word gods. You see it multiple times, 82 verse 1, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And you see it also later on in verse 6. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. And I suppose if this were the only text of Scripture that we had, that we might think the Bible is somehow teaching polytheism or multiple gods in the existence of this divine courtroom scene, obviously when we interpret Scripture with Scripture, that's easy for to fall out, first of all. And actually, this, task, this isn't really much of an interpretive difficulty because we, have the, we don't have this at all, the Old Testament interpretive. Uh, these sorts of difficulties. But we certainly do here. Jesus talks about this passage in John 10. You can read it later. And Jesus very clearly helps us recognize that the gods here are referring to human leaders. Now, John 10 has its own interpretive difficulties, which we don't have to get into since we're not preaching John 10. What Jesus is meaning by that and what he's exactly doing with that is sort of also somewhat difficult. But for our actual interpretive difficulty, I'll be with Jesus every time, Right? If Jesus gives me a key to interpreting something, it's like, all right, then it's settled. I don't have to even really worry about it anymore. So the word God's here, why it's chosen, whatever else we could go into that, there's really no need. It's essentially that the, the Father, the Heavenly Father, is coming in and judging the human rulers. Very similar to like Psalm 2, right? In Psalm 2, you have the, the earthly rulers sort of shaking their fist and the Heavenly Father laughing from the heavens at their 
weak attempt to rule. So that's something similar to what we have here. And if we just started right in, what we might be surprised about, I'm always, I'm always interested in the surprises that we have in, in any biblical account, particularly ones that are maybe uh, more familiar to us. The surprise is what God is judging them about. He's judging them about their judgment in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. So the human rulers are being called into the courtroom of the eternal God and being condemned for their lack of justice, for their showing favoritism, something that we know is, of course, unjust. So our our text tells us a couple of things about God's view, right? So God's concern for the unjust judging. And then the primary people that he has in mind, we see right in verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What are they being unjust about? They're being unjust. They're showing partiality towards the wicked rather than giving justice to those who need the justice. The weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the weak, the needy. Verse 5 just extends it slightly. Tells us more about the state in which the needy find themselves. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So we can learn a couple of things about God's attitude about the needy. And... Under that category is the topic that we're interested in for the purposes of this morning, and that is particularly the fatherless, which we see there as well. So the first thing that we can learn, the first point, if you want to write anything down, is that God's serious about this issue. So I grew up in a very... Um, my home was one where was, there was a lot of security. And the more adults that I meet, and even other young kid, college kids that I the more I realize that is not always the case. I always kind of know it, but then you talk to someone who the lack of security, I'm not just talking financial, just emotional security, is your parents looking out for you, right? So my father in Oklahoma, he was an accountant slash rancher, and he just sort of, he, he was at times an angry man, but he was never angry to the point that we were scared he was actually going to hurt us, right? He was not at all an abusive man. He would just get angry. And in fact, 95% of the time when he was angry, my brother and I would laugh because my dad's really funny when he gets angry. He'd go around the house. He was mad that we'd lost the pliers and he'd be screaming, I should just buy 8,000 pliers and put one in every drawer. You guys lose the pliers. And so he's kind of going off and saying these grandiose things. But it's funny and we're just laughing at him and he's kind of playing along, but he's also kind of angry. He doesn't mind that we're laughing at him because he's kind of putting on a show and he's trying to make a point, but he, he's angry. But every now and then there were times that dad would get angry and serious. And you didn't laugh then, right? And in those moments were typically, as a good father should, those are typically moments that what he was angry about was not the lost pliers or whatever other inconvenience that he was frustrated about that moment, but he was angry about something that he felt was crucial to your well-being as his son right 
And that's not a time to laugh. That's not a time to do anything but recognize dad is serious and I need to be serious. And this is what we see in this passage. And I think this is why the whole setting is this courtroom setting to show the serious nature that God places on this particular issue, giving justice to the weak and the fatherless. And we see this seriousness in many other places in the Bible. Uh, we had a guy at our church uh, who adopted, they fostered and then adopted. And if you ever asked him what was his favorite verse on uh, orphan care, he would always mention Exodus 22, 22 through 24. And this is another place that we see how serious God is about this. You know Exodus, this is right in the giving of the law. Here's what God says through Moses in Exodus 22, starting in 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. What a remarkable passage. You shall not mistreat a fatherless child or a widow. If you do, I will make your wife a widow and your child fatherless by killing you. That's serious. God takes this very seriously. Isaiah 1, a couple of different places, 17, 22, 23. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Later on, 22 through 23, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get my relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Who are the foes of God in this passage? Those who are not maintaining the right of the fatherless and the widow. Everything we're saying equally applies. The, the, the widow and the fatherless fall parallel very frequently throughout these justice passages, both in the Old and the New Testament. So we're, we're sort of highlighting the case of the fatherless, but every single thing that we say extends specifically to widows, but also to weak and needy. Deuteronomy 27, verse 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. People say, Amen. Malachi 3.5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, who? Against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We rightly understand God through Jesus as the one who is a witness for us. And this passage is showing the seriousness of God taking on this passage saying, no, 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 if you don't give justice to the fatherless, I will be a witness against you. I don't want God to be a witness against me. I know you don't either. So the first thing we see from this passage that we can extrapolate is God takes this very seriously. It's a courtroom setting and God is in this case saying, this is one of those things that I care deeply about as recognized in other spots in the scripture as well. The second thing we see from this passage is that the command is very clear. That's the verse three. We've already looked at it. The, the, the command from God on his judgment to us is give justice to the weak and the fatherless. 
We're going to spend some time towards the end of kind of talking in a little bit more detail, hashing out how we can do that in our context, in our day and age. It's going to be a little bit different than the original audience and even the New Testament audience looking back on this. So we'll, we'll, we'll lay out that just a little bit. But the actual indicative is easy to understand. The imperative is give justice to the weak and the fatherless. The fact is this is something God cares about. But this is a case in which, when we, when we look at other places in the passage, in, in the Bible, this isn't another place where God is sort of like saying, uh, do what I say, not what I do. In other words, we see very clearly from God's word that God is already about this task. So God is already doing this work, and he calls us to come alongside him. Just, once again, another few passages to make this point. Write them down if you would like. Don't worry about it if you don't. Psalm 68.5, what you're going to see is a, 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 a series of propositions that show us that God's already doing this work. Psalm 68.5, God refers to himself as father of the fatherless and protector of, protector of widows. The psalmist says father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So God is already protecting the widows. God is already fathering the fathers. Same with Psalm 10. In two different spots, verse 14 and verse 18. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been helper of the fatherless, later in 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. A very similar sort of uh, just uh, a, a combination that we have in Psalm 82. The current leaders are striking terror. They're not causing the fatherless, the needy, and the widow to feel safe and to have peace. They're actually doing just the opposite with their partiality. Hosea 14.3. Assyria will not save us. He will not ride on horses. We'll say no more, O God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy in God. Deuteronomy 10. 17 and 18, for the Lord our God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And in Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The point being, the mandate, the command to us is very clear. Give justice to the fatherless. God is already at this work inviting us to join him in his own work. It's very clear for us to see that God is making this command to us in a way that we have to take seriously. We have to do something with it. This entire topic is parallel in many ways to something like the Great Commission. right? So the Great Commission is go into all nations baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just like me, I, there may be some professional missionaries in the room that are back or maybe working with Wycliffe or something here that I don't know of. In our church, we have some of those. But the majority of us are not dedicated, we're not called to participate in the Great Commission in the same way that someone who has sold their things and 
hopped on a ship or a boat and moved somewhere to fulfill that calling. But we are all, as God's people, called to participate in that great commission, right? I've heard someone wise once say, in the great commission or passages like this, there's sort of three options. Go, or we could say, actively care for the orphan. Go, send, or sin, right? S-I-N. If you're not going to the mission field or sending people to the mission field, then you're not fulfilling the obligation of the Great Commission. We could say the same thing about this, right? Defend the right of the fatherless and the widow. We either have to be doing that in a very particular way, or we're supporting others who are doing it, or we're falling short of God's requirements of us as revealed in his word. So the command is very clear. But in this passage, at least, it doesn't tell us how to do that. What is to be expected? We're going to return to this passage at the end to sort of get a little future glimpse of what God's going to do in the already not yet. Um, Praise the Lord for that. And so this is why I already sort of referenced this. I think it's very helpful, particularly on the defending the fatherless, to break it into two separate categories. The first category is adoption, and the second category is a broader umbrella term called orphan care. So let's talk about adoption first. Um, This is a little bit like as I am a father who has adopted two sons. It could be a little bit of one of those times like, oh, if everyone could just be as great as me and just, you know... I've actually heard people like my wife and I have run around with adopted kind of families. And every now and then there's a little bit of a one upmanship. We're a little better than you. If everyone just did what we did, there wouldn't really be a problem. And you're thinking, well, that's sort of a self-righteous attitude that I don't really find attractive. (laughs) And I think that it's not good for your soul for you to kind of think, oh, here's the one thing we did really well. Uh, Shouldn't everyone do it? And we're going to talk a little bit about Orphan care helps us, I think, to have a better, a better level of humility when we're facing something like this. So let's talk about adoption. Interestingly, this, this was interesting for me, even more recently, someone who's thought about adoption theologically for some time. Um, when I really, this last time when I was given this text and this task, I started wanting to think really carefully about adoption stories in the Bible. And there are examples of children in the Bible who basically were adopted, but the word adoption in these cases isn't used. Uh, In Esther, you get the idea of Mordecai. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And then you see how he cares for her really well through that. So it's definitely, there's some sort of, he's he's taken her up as if she is his own daughter. Um, Eli and Samuel, remember Samuel is taken to the temple. Eli watches out for Samuel, sort of an adoption story. Uh, in the New Testament, you've got Jesus essentially gets adopted by his earthly father, Joseph. Uh, it's sort of an interesting kind of, not perfect parallel, but basically, oh, that's true. Jesus's father was not Joseph, yet Joseph raised Jesus trained Jesus for however many years until Joseph wasn't there, passed away. We knew he was at least there for those first formative years. Um, But the interesting thing is the word adoption only shows up in two adoption stories in the entire Bible. 
So there's only two stories that are literally adoption stories if we want to demand that to be the word adoption used. And the first one is Moses. In Acts 7, uh, Luke tells us, when he was first exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. All right, so Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, which is sort of an interesting case of adoption because Moses was not motherless. <laughs> nor fatherless at that point in time. He just needed to have his life rescued. And in fact, it seems there's a lot of wisdom in this whole setup because by happenstance, the sister was close enough to by happenstance bring the biological mother back to be the nurse of Moses. So Moses is adopted, but he's not really adopted in the same sense that you might. He's not motherless. He's not without family. So the number one story, and it's actually the story that you hear the word adoption used most frequently, is our adoption in Christ. That's the adoption story of the Bible. The primary adoption story of the Bible is a story of us, enemies of God, shaking our fists in our sin, not wanting to have anything to do with the inheritance, and yet... But God, by his grace and mercy, does a work in our heart, brings us about, and causes us to not only be forgiven, but brings us in as adopted sons. Let's just look at a couple of those passages where the term adoption technically, specifically is used. Romans eight fifteen through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians 3, 4 and 7. For when with fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you were sons, God had sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir. John 1, but 12 through 13, For all who did not receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It right? doesn't use the word adoption, but definitely is talking specifically about us becoming children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And this adoption theme theologically in the gospel of the New Testament is so central that some theologians have actually said it might be the fact that adoption is this uh, theological theme that we haven't thought nearly enough about. I believe J.I. Packer has an incredible quote of sort of the glories of the gospel are more clearly seen through the doctrine of adoption than even through justification. And it sort of makes sense, right? Those of us who really get the gospel should at times find it offensive almost. Like, how could God forgive my sin? It's a problem, the problem of grace, right? How is it possible that a perfect, holy God could forgive my sin? And that's what highlights the work of Jesus in such a beautiful way. And so if we could even get over the, the hurdle of, oh, okay, that's how my sins could be forgiven. So we might be able to make sense of the fact that God can look at us because of the righteousness of Christ. And instead of seeing Jason Oak, selfish sinner, God could see righteous 
non-sinner, forgiven. I might be able to get my mind wrapped around that. But the doctrine of adoption is not merely sort of this judgment that I'm no longer a sinner, but it's the notion of God coming around and getting on his knee and embracing us as sons and daughters, children. As if being forgiven isn't enough. As if being forgiven of our sin isn't enough grace, God the Father goes around, enters into relationship, and calls us children, joint heirs with Christ. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing to think about. It should rightly cause us to celebrate and worship and praise just like we've already been doing this morning. One definition of adoption, theologically, is the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Right? So we're separate from God because of our sin, God needs to proclaim us righteous justification. He can only do that because of the work of Jesus on the cross, propitiation. But because of the work of Jesus on the cross, God the judge can look on us and say, you have placed your faith in Jesus, therefore I can proclaim you righteous. You are no longer a sinner. And then the next logical piece is the doctrine of adoption. Not only do I proclaim you sinless and righteous, I bring you into my family and I make you a child. It's really beautiful. It actually helps us. I think it, it gives, as we're, as we're taking this gospel that we want to continue to sort of just circle in the light like a diamond and think about all the different aspects and how it penetrates us and how it changes us and how it formulates the way we live and interact with one another, both our fellow Christians as well as our non-Christian neighbors and co-workers, that this theory of a, this, this doctrine of adoption can help us so much to understand who we are, our identity is remarkably different because we're now children of God by nature of his ad- adopting us. Very quickly, what are some implications of adoption for us on this? So remember, we're, we're saying, well, the primary way the Bible talks about adoption is through the gospel, our adoption. Secondary, that's the most often time that it talks about it. Because we're adopted, we share in the inheritance of Christ. And when we think about the old, like, I don't know if, if anybody here, my, um, my wife uh, helped me grow to appreciate Jane Eyre when we were first married. Um, and uh, Pride and Prejudice was a movie that the BBC version, it has to be like the four-hour BBC version to, to be able to really, to really appreciate some of these novels that are, that are written with such complexity. But you get the sense of, in a lot of these older books, the father has no male children. He has only daughters, so he has no heir. So when in Great Britain the father passes away, even if he is a man of some wealth or little wealth, his wealth is going to go to the closest male heir. So here's a sense in which when the Bible calls us all sons of God, there's a sense in which we're not trying to say, well, women don't count. It's pointing to, no, we all participate in this heir mentality. We all receive the benefits of the oldest son to receive the heir that only Jesus really deserves. It's ours now. We share in the inheritance. Another implication. We're all now brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Churches who take this very seriously, and you guys do, it's easy to see. It just seeps out the way you guys talk to one another. The way that, but when we take this really seriously, it, it helps create this sort of leveling playing field. There's not a preacher who's a little bit more special than everyone else, and other strugglers who are kind of trying to catch up. No, 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 we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, that our merit has everything to do with Jesus and nothing else. Maybe some people in my church, maybe some of you here, don't want to be my brother or sister, but too bad, right? It's just the way it works. Maybe I don't want to be your brother or sister. Too bad. Family is family. We got to deal with it. It's the beauty of it, right? It's actually one of my favorite things at church after, uh, particularly in these weird political times, I like watching after church and just kind of noticing that person is talking to that person. And I don't know that they know it, but I know for a fact that they don't agree at all politically. I love that, right? What do they agree on? They agree on Jesus. They agree on the gospel. And that's enough to have genuine, important relationships to all be one family. Two other implications that come from being sons of God. Uh, You might not think of these as benefits, but they certainly are. The first is because we are now brothers and sisters in Christ and adopted sons of God, we will be disciplined as sons, Hebrews 12, 7 tells us. As a father disciplines, I'll just read it. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there for whom his father does not discipline? Because we are being adopted, God will now treat us as children. He will discipline us. He will train us in righteousness. And ultimately, we've already read the passage in Romans 18, because we're adopted, because we're disciplined as sons, we're also called to share in the sufferings of Christ. And if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, Romans 8, 17. We don't have to think long and hard to think of there's a lot of churches that struggle with a verse like this. There are a lot of churches that, that would teach, no, 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 if, if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, there should be nothing but good things coming your way. And health, and, and enough security and money, and all these other sorts of things. But what we see is just the opposite. of Actually, we're promised that we're going to suffer with Christ. As members of this family. So, Since we are adopted, this is how the gospel fuels sort of our activity in this relationship. Since we are adopted, then we can care for the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the needy. Because grace has been displayed to us so beautifully and given us so much more than we deserve, we have this natural outpouring that we have available to us through the Spirit that we can now use to love and care for the needy. So in our case, uh, my wife and I, um, most of our church has a fairly active um, orphan care slash adoption ministry. Um, 
I don't even know what the percentages are. Quite a few of them were people who were not able to biologically have children, and then the Lord opened up an, ob- an avenue for adoption, and that's why they pursued that. For my wife and I, that was not the case. Uh, from an early age, or right when we were married, we had some situations in our extended family that caused us to start considering adoption even before we even started thinking about having our own biological children, and then God continued to stir that in us and stir that in us, and we were able to fulfill that praise the lord and it was some ups and downs and some craziness in ethiopia at the time ethiopia now as a country is closed for international adoptions sort of heartbreaking it's not as it's just they stopped letting them be adopted they started saying oh we'll take care of it ourselves which means there's huge rooms huge orphanages full of orphans that can't be adopted it's one of the things that um I'll say it now and hopefully I'll return to it. But in the orphan care ministry, one of the things that we as churches can do is try to help other churches all over the world care for their orphans as Christians, just like the earliest Christians did in Rome, right? In Rome, the earliest Christians were known for going around and picking up the discarded children and bringing them into their families and raising them as their own. The earliest Christians were adopters, because they lived in a culture that didn't value life, didn't value in a culture, didn't live in a culture that valued these children. So if the Ethiopian church could get a vision for orphan care, then maybe the Ethiopian children wouldn't need to become American children, right? That's, it's a big vision. It's a big thing to be thinking about. It's a big thing to be praying about. Add that to your prayer list, that the world will be reached for Jesus and among all the other things that the church all over the world could learn how to do, that this is another piece of that, right? To care for the orphans in their communities. The answer to the orphan crisis is not bring them all to America. The orphanage or the uh, adoption agency we worked with I'm, it's, it's the worst named adoption. I don't know if it, but the name of the adoption agency is America World International Adoption Agency. And I was, I was like, oh, it's like, what, we're trying to turn the world into America? It just kind of felt like everything sort of, you know, that's like we're going to take over, we're going to bring it. And I think it was just the, na- the way that they named it. But I kept even thinking about it. I was like, the goal is not to turn these kids into Americans. The goal is to put these kids in families. That's the goal. That's the goal that we see here in Scripture. So that's the first way. Defend the fatherless. One way is to adopt and foster. Everything I just said applies to foster care as well. I don't know if anyone here is involved in foster care. We have a few people in our church. There's really beautiful things to do in foster care. Uh, There's uh, the short term. We have people in our church who watch babies for just sometimes a night or two at a time. So they always have a room in their house. They always have a crib ready. And anytime there's a child that just got put into the system and they haven't yet figured out where they're going to be, they have people in the foster care system that will take care of a baby at 30 minutes notice to be able to, to give them some love and affection and care until they can get placed either back with another family member or into the actual foster care system. Another important ministry of foster care and orphan care is the age in which these kids age out of the foster system. It's a real problem in our country, in the United States. At 18 years old, these kids have nowhere else to go. 
for Christmas or for holidays. They have some money dedicated to them, but there's no plans. If they were plans, they wouldn't be great anyway, but there's no plans from the government to help these children sort of go from being a 17 or 18-year-old into being a fully formed, functioning adult. I've got kids at that age. They ain't ready for the real world, right? I don't think it just, there's a lot of bridge work that needs to happen. And there's some churches have really interesting ministries to specifically this group of foster kids who have aged out. Here's what I'm trying to say. Adoption slash foster care. If you, one way to obey this passage is to adopt. And I, I would love it if anyone had any specific questions about that. We could talk afterwards. You could email me, call me, whatever else. Or to foster some of you might be single and say, you know what? I can't do that now, but maybe once I get married, maybe those are two things, are two categories that I'm going to let the Spirit uh, like bake into uh, my, my thought process a little bit. Other than that, we have a broader umbrella of just orphan care. And that's what I just wanted to talk about a little bit towards the end. So one of the ways to obey is to actually foster or adopt. One way is to participate more broadly in orphan care. And one of the things I read very early on that was very poignant and very helpful is it said, maybe you've adopted your children some number of years ago, like I have, but what are you participating in today to help the orphan? My two sons aren't orphans. So 10 years ago, I participated in orphan care by adopting two sons. But what am I doing now? Those two boys are no longer orphans. Is, what, am, what is still, how am I living out this passage today in thinking about orphans and thinking about the fatherless and God's heart for them and how the gospel communicates to me the need to love for them. And these are where we want to try to, to, to familiarize ourselves. There's, uh, there's people in our church that are uh, causes, court-appointed uh, advocates of some kind. And a casa is literally a person who is, av- who is a, a court-appointed person to help these foster kids look out for them. So it's not a lawyer, but it's not because these kids in these court cases get end up just tossed around from family to family and there's a bunch of tug-of-war. And sometimes they have a third party that comes in who's not looking out for anyone else's benefit other than the child. So there's all kinds of interesting ways that I could throw out more if I had more time of thinking through how to care for kids in foster care, how to care for kids that are in in orphanages all over the world, and how to care for um, our churches to be more mindful of how we can help that. I think about uh, our first trip to Ethiopia. We took our biological daughters with us. And um, one of the things we did on that first trip was we went to an HIV orphanage. So all the kids in this one, in Addis Ababa, every single one of these kids had HIV, HIV positive. Probably their parents had died from the disease and they were now orphaned because of that. And I remember sort of naively asking our guide to translate to the orphan, to, to, the, to the person who was providing care, what percentage of these kids would ever be adopted? And the guide didn't even ask that question because he knew the answer. He's like, these, these kids won't ever be adopted. And I remember my 20-year-old daughter, Damaris, Where's that little boy? Where, he's 20 years old. If he survived, probably not thriving on the streets of Addis Ababa. And those are the kinds of things that as we find out about them and we realize about them, we see what the Spirit can do.
19. As we turn to our passage to get one third. The second point is uh, the command is very clear, care for the fatherless. And the third point that we see in our passage is that God is the one that not only is doing the work currently, but God is the one who will ultimately complete this work in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So there will come a time, this is the gospel hope that we have from our biblical storyline of creation, fall, grace, and ultimately this story is moving into a direction of glory, of consummation, where God the Father will wipe tears and there will be no more orphan and there will be no more mourning. And we see this reminded right here that this moment of this of God walking in and proclaiming his judgment on these earthly leaders for their pitiful job of providing care that will end in time. And I think it gives us as Christians an incredible, uh, it's like a belay cord to attach to ourselves so that we can crawl into some of the darkest places that this earth has ever seen. Because we have this gospel hope that we know that our God is all about redeeming this and completing this process, and what little di- damage we might do to the enemy is still gospel-empowered and allows us to really realize that we are doing work of the Father. Romans 8.23 reminds us of this as well. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You've probably heard the theological term, the already not yet. On the one hand, we are adopted now fully in Jesus. On the other hand, we will not fully receive the benefits of this adoption until this new heavens and this new earth comes. So how can we apply this to our life? Four things very quickly. First, if you're not a member of God's family, believe in the gospel, join the family, take upon yourself both the benefits and the discipline and the sufferings that come with that. Perhaps the Spirit is leading some of us to consider actively participating in foster care or adoption. If not, we have to find some other way to obey this, whether it's through our giving, through our prayers, through our mindset, so that we are participating in orphan care ministry, whatever that looks like. And Finally, we can rest, even in, the, even in facing such a great challenge, we can rest in the hope that God is in this work and he will complete the task. May I pray for us. Father, Holy Spirit, we thank you for a heavy topic, uh, but something you care deeply about. And I, God, I pray that you would open our eyes even now and uh, give us hope and strengthen us for what specifically through the Spirit you would have each of us do in relation to this command to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. In Jesus' name we pray.